We've been talking about these giants in 2 Samuel chapter number 21. And we have looked at two of them already. There are five giants. One of them was Goliath and then four of his brothers. You remember when David went to fight against Goliath, how many stones did he pick up? Five. He only needed one for Goliath, but he had four others for his brothers in case he needed them. And later on in life, he had to deal with them. We've talked about the first giant, Ishbibinab, which represents pride, and we spent some time dealing with that. We talked about Goliath. They're the sons of the giant. Goliath represents the giant of lust. And tonight, we're going to look at the man, the giant, by the name of Sath. He's called here in, in 2 Samuel 20, 21, Sath, and over in 1 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 4, his name is Sipapiah. He's the same man, and we want to look at this giant who represents the giant of wine. We're talking about five giants that every man has to deal with in his life, men, women, young people as well. And this third giant is Saph or Sapiah. The original sense of the word literally means a cup or a bowl for blood or wine. That's what his name means. Drinking wine for a long time has been a, a great debate among Christians and among believers. And in our world today, there are a lot of people who are justifying it and saying it's okay. Wine, strong drink, alcoholic beverages. And so I wanted us to take some time to look at this from the Bible and see what God's Word has to say about it. The interesting thing is that both sides of the issue use different Bible verses to reinforce their position. However, after all the discussion, the conclusion still stands what we read in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. Wine is a mocker. It mocks you. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby, God says, is not wise. He's not wise. So I want us to look at several things tonight. First of all, and there should have been an insert in your bulletin this morning that had the notes for tonight. Uh, some of you may not have those. I don't know if the guys have any left back there. Uh, ushers, we got any of those left? We'll check and see. You're all out? All right, you got them all. Okay, good. Thanks, Mike. Uh, you can't create them out of nothing? Okay, good try. All right, first of all, I want you to notice that we want to understand the different levels of fermentation. There are different levels of fermentation. When you read the word wine in the Bible, we tend to relate it to the word wine or to wine in our day today. Nothing could be farther from the truth. In the biblical days, there were no distilleries like we have today. Natural fermentation was the only process to make fermented wine. And in this process, the fermentation level could only reach between 10 and 15 percent. The distilled alcohol drinks of our day are far, far higher than that level, than 10 or 15 percent. In biblical times, any drink over 5 percent alcohol was considered to be strong drink. So we would kind of, right away, you would find 5 percent strong drink, we think, put it way up here what is it, 80 proof or 90 proof? We think that's strong drink. It's a long ways from the 5% uh, of what was taking place in, in the biblical days. So just simply want you to understand there are different levels 
of fermentation. And in the Bible days, it was much different from what we have today. So then I want to secondly to, to look at some of the descriptive biblical words for wine. There are a number of words. In fact, there are at least 10 different Hebrew words used in the Old Testament that describe the various types of wine. And they're, they're many of them translated in the same word, wine, strong drink, uh, and so forth. And we'll see as we go along uh, this evening. But they can describe everything from freshly squeezed grape juice all the way to intoxicating alcohol. And all of them may be translated the same word wine that we use in our, in our English Bible. In the New Testament, there are also ten Greek words that are described, that are translated to wine, describe different types of wine. But much of the precise descriptiveness has been lost in our English Bible because fresh grape juice and intoxicating alcohol are both translated the word wine. Oftentimes, the true meaning of the word can be understood simply by the context in which it is used. And we can know when God says strong wine is a mocker, we can pretty well figure out that's something we shouldn't be a part of, right? Strong drink is raging. We can tell from the context that's not a good thing. So as we think about these different words, I want you to, I want you to, to, to follow along with me, and it may be a little bit technical, but I want you to understand that there are different words that are used in the Hebrew language and in the Greek language that we don't catch the meaning of in our English language. So let's look at the Hebrew words for wine, first of all. The first word that is used is the word yayin, Y-A-Y-I-N. Yayin is used 140 times in the Old Testament, and it describes intoxicating wine, and it has many warnings for us. The first mention of wine in the Bible uses this word yayin. There is a law in Bible study called the law of first mention, which means that when something is mentioned the first time in the Bible, it sets the pattern for the way it should be interpreted or understood through the rest of the Word of God. So in Genesis chapter 9, the first mention of wine is in chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. And it says, And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered in his tent. Now that... You're talking about law first mentioned. First time wine is mentioned is not a good connotation, is it? There's some problems with it. Amen? And he talks about here he was drunken and he was uncovered in his tent. Drunkenness and nakedness seem to go together a lot of times. And we see that in our world today. What happens when people get into their partying and drinking and you have the next thing, you know, nakedness and immorality and all of that that goes hand in hand. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15 says, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth a bottle to him, and maketh him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. The drinking and the nakedness go hand in hand. Lot's oldest daughter said to her younger sister in Genesis 19, verse 32, Come, let us make our father drink wine, that's the word yayen, and we will lie with him, we will commit incest, that we may preserve seed to our father. God laments His people in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 29, and He says, Oh, that they were wise and understood this, that they would consider their latter end, their wine, that's the Hebrew word, yayen, their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. Well, it sounds like God's not real happy with that, doesn't it? Let's us know where He stands. 
You remember Job, the story of Job, his ten, his ten children, sons and daughters. They had these various parties that they had, and they refused to invite their father, uh, Job, to come to them to the celebration. And in Job 1, verse 13, it says, There was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine. It's the word yayen. Right away, since we've seen how it's used already in Scripture, we know that it's not a good thing. And so it says, they're eating and drinking in their eldest brother's house. And Satan caused a hurricane to come, and the house collapsed and killed them all. Wicked people drink the wine of violence, Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 17 says. And again, God says in Proverbs 20 and verse 1, wine, yayen, is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whoso is deceived thereby is not wise. God warns again in Proverbs 21 and verse 17, he says, He that loveth wine, Hebrew word is yayen, he that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. Notice what God says in Proverbs 23. I want you to look over there with me at that verse, rather than just quote it for you, but look at Proverbs chapter 21. After he talks about in chapter 20, wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. Look at what he says in chapter 21. And he says there in verse 17, we read it just a moment ago, he that loveth wine shall, and oil shall not be rich. Now look over at chapter 23 and verse 29. Chapter 23 of Proverbs and verse 29. He says, who hath woe, who hath sorrow, who hath contentions, who hath babbling, who hath wounds without cause, who hath redness of eyes, they that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color to the cup, when it moveth itself aright, that's the fermentation process. At the last it biteth like a serpent, serpent, it stingeth like an adder, like a snake. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and their, thy heart shall utter perverse things. Again, God gives us some stern warnings and lets us know that he's not pleased with wine, amen, and with the strong drink. There's an interesting story in the Old Testament about people called the Rechabites. The Rechabites were praised by God for refusing to drink wine. Listen to what it says in Jeremiah 35 and verse 6. It says, But they said, We will drink no wine, no yayen. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. And God praised them for following the, the command of their father. Daniel, you remember, was rewarded for vowing not to drink wine. In Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank, the yayen. He purposed that he would not defile himself by drinking the wine. It'd be a good thing if we'd make that kind of a purpose in our life too, wouldn't it? That we'll not defile ourselves by drinking it. There's a second Hebrew word that's used, it's terash, it's used 38 times in the, in the Old Testament, and it describes new wine or sweet wine and other types of wine at any level of fermentation from mild all the way to potent. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11, it says, Hordom and wine, that's yayen, and new wine, that's terish, take away the heart. God commands us in Proverbs 23, 26, he says, My son... Give me 
thine heart. God wants us to give our heart to Him. He speaks to those who do the opposite, who rebel against God, who don't give their heart to God. And He says in Hosea 7, 14, And they have not cried unto Me with their heart. When they howled upon their beds, they assembled themselves for corn and wine, and they rebel against Me. So God kind of ties together with the wine here, the rebellion against God and against His Word. And then there's a third Hebrew word, shakar. It is used 23 times in the Old Testament, and it speaks of strong drink. It is strong drink that contains between 7 and 10% of alcoholic content. That's far less than our distilled wine in our day-to-day, and yet it was still had an intoxicating potential to it. God commanded all of the priests not to drink it. In Leviticus chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says, Do not drink wine, that's Yayan, nor strong drink, that's the shikar. Thou nor thy sons with thee, when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. God said when you go, when they went into the tabernacle, when they went into the temple or the church, God said don't drink the wine lest ye die. Now that alone tells us a little bit about why we don't use wine in a communion service. In the Old Testament, God forbade the priests. He said, if you do that, you drink the wine when you go into the temple. He said, you're going to die. He says, it is a statue forever throughout your generation, and that ye be not, and that ye may put a difference between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean. In other words, God said to go into the temple and to drink the wine is unholy or unclean. And God said, do not do that. Scripture is very clear in forbidding all leaders were not to drink wine. Proverbs chapter 31, verses 4 and 5 says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, that's the Hebrew word yayen, nor for princes strong drink, that's the word shakar, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the, of the afflicted. Now listen to that verse again. He says, it's not for kings. And then he says, nor for princes. You get over to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6, and it's significant that God declares that all of us as believers, He says, He hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. So if we've been made kings and priests, and God has said to the priests in the Old Testament, don't you drink it, that applies to us in the New Testament too, doesn't it? Because we are kings and priests unto the Lord, unto God our Father. That in itself, right there, ought to end the discussion for all believers. Those that want to escape the consequence of wine in their lives and in the lives of our descendants, stay away from it. Don't have anything to do with it. There's a fourth Hebrew word. It's kamar. Kamar. It is used seven times in the Old Testament. It conveys the idea of foaming, as in the process of fermentation or, or when it is poured out. It comes from the Hebrew word hamar, which means to boil up, the, the drink that boils up. King Belshazzar drank the Kemar wine and on the night of God's judgment when Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine, that's the Kemar, before the thousand. They drank Kemar and praised the gods of gold and silver and brass and iron and wood and of stone. And of course, God brought his judgment upon them as a result of it. And then there's a fifth word. The fifth word is Aussie. It's spelled A-S-I-S. It's pronounced Aussies. It is used five times in the Old Testament. 
It speaks of sweet wine or new wine. It is the vintage of the current year, and yet it still had intoxicating power. Notice that God puts this wine in the center of his judgment. In Isaiah 49, and verse number 26, he says, And I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, and they shall be drunken with their own blood, as with sweet wine all seas, and all flesh shall know that the Lord the Lord, and that I, the Lord, am the Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And then the sixth word that's translated wine is the word uh, kametz. Kametz, it's used six times in the Old Testament. It literally refers to vinegar, which is a part of the fermentation process for wine and for other fermented beverages. It is a mix, it's mixed with water, and it's used sometimes as a condiment with food. As a drink, it is slightly intoxicating. God's instructions to the Nazarites in Numbers chapter 6 and verse 3, he says, He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine, that's the comets, or vinegar, or strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. What an amazing thing that God again gives pretty clear instructions. Scripture predicted that those that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ would give him the comets to drink, or the vinegar, but you remember when he was crucified, he refused to take of it. In Psalm 69, 21 and 22, it says, They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar, or carme, to drink. Let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. The Bible puts this word karmets in a very negative light. In Proverbs 10, verse 26, he says, as, as vinegar, the karmets, as vinegar to the teeth, and as smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to them that send him. Again, Proverbs 25, 20, as he that taketh away a garment in cold weather, and as vinegar, karmets, upon nitra, the bubbling up of acid, so is he that singeth songs, to a heavy heart. Another word that's used for wine is the word shemar. Shemar. It's used five times. Shemar refers to the old wine. It's wine that had been kept in storage. It's sometimes called the dregs of wine. Wine that has been around for a while. Psalm 75 verse 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full of mixture. It's fully mixed and poured out of the same, but the dregs, the shemar thereof, all the wicked of the earth shall wring them out and drink them. Again, another word that is used is the word sobe. It is used three times. This word is used for drink, for liquor, and for wine. And it's also used in a very negative context in the Bible. Hosea 4 verse 18 says, Their drink, their sobe, is sour. They have committed whoredom continually. Her rulers with shame do love. And again, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 says, How is the faithful city become an harlot? The silver has become dross, the wine, the sobe, mixed with water. So you can see the negative context. And here you have, in those verses, you have the, the wine and the immorality that went hand in hand together. Another Hebrew word is the word mansach. It's used three times. It refers to mixed drink or mixed wine or a drink offering. 
It describes wine that was mixed with water and spices that would increase the stimulating properties of the wine. This is also used in the Bible in a negative light. Proverbs 23, 29, and 30. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babblings? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. That's the word mansack that is used there. And then there's another word, and that's the word mamsok. Mamsok. M-E-Z-E-G. Mamsok. It's used one time, and it refers to wine being a mixture, or again, a mixed wine. Song of Solomon 7, verse 2 says, Thy navel is like a round goblet, which wanteth not liquor. Um, and that's the word uh, mamsok. Thy belly is like a heap of wheat set upon thy lilies. So you have these ten Hebrew words, and they're very clear, very descriptive about what it means. We just have it translated as wine, or new wine, or mixed wine, and we miss a lot of the descriptiveness of what God's really talking about there. Now we get over to the New Testament. I want to look at the Greek words very quickly for wine that are given in the New Testament. The first word is the word oinos. It is used 33 times in the New Testament. This is the common word for wine in the New Testament. Unlike the Hebrew words in the Old Testament, it reveals nothing about the alcoholic content of the drink. This absence of the definition has caused the debates among believers to continue in this matter of wine drinking. When Jesus turned the water into wine at the marriage of Canaan, the word oinos is used there. Did that wine have alcoholic content? We'll talk about that in a minute. When Jesus gave the cup to his disciples to drink at the Last Supper, was it fermented wine? The questions of those, or the answer to those questions, come from the context of the scripture. You can read the passage, you can tell what he's talking about. Another word that's used in the New Testament, Greek word, is oinon neon. It is used eight times. It refers to new wine, which was put into new wine skins before it fermented. Therefore, new wine would be freshly squeezed grape juice. It had not yet fermented. And then the word glyco glycokos is used one time. It is used for the word sweet wine. When wine becomes fermented, it can result in intoxication. When the disciples on the day of Pentecost spoke in tongues, the unbelieving Jews said in Acts 2.13, these men are full of new wine. They were talking about an intoxicated wine there. So that brings me to the third thing, to answer some of these questions that we have. Why Jesus could not have turned water into fermented wine? When he turned the water into wine at the, at the marriage of Canaan, the wedding there, it could not have been fermented wine. A favorite response of people when they try to support drinking wine as Christians, they'll say, well, Jesus turned the water into wine. If it's okay for him, then it's all right for me to drink. Could I say to you, there is no way that our Savior turned water into fermented wine. Amen. Fermentation is a process of decomposition, decomposing. Dead things decompose, right? But Jesus is not dead. He's alive. He is life. He gives life. All the things that Jesus created, all were living. They all had life. There's no death in him. He would not have created a dead drink to feed to people or to give to people to drink as wedding guests. In fact, when he gave them the wine, 
The Bible says they marveled at how good it was. John 2 and verse 10 says, Thou hast kept the good wine until now. And here's an interesting thing. Thou hast kept the good wine. The word good there, the Greek word is kalos. And it literally means inherently whole and balanced as created by God. It was not fermented. It was not decomposing. That's a direct contrast to the fermentation process. Jesus compared himself in the Bible to the grapevine and all of his disciples being branches that are connected to the, grape, to the grapevine. He says, I am the, I am the vine, ye are the branches in John 15. And the branches are cleansed by the living word of God. It is the word of God that cleanses us. John 15 and verse number 3 and verse 10 says, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. It is through the living word of God that fruit is produced in our life for the glory of God. As we are connected to Him, to the vine and to His word, Satan's goal is to corrupt our lives and corrupt the fruit of the believer. Jesus created wine at the wedding feast. And you know how he did it? Through obedience to his word. Obedience to his word. Mary told the servants in John chapter 2 and verse 5, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And so the creating of that wine came as a result of obedience to the word of God. It says, Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled him up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear out unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. All of it was a process of obedience to the word of God. Just as the word of God causes the, the vine, we are a part of that vine, to bring forth fruit, it brought forth in this particular case the living wine that was not fermented, it was alive, and it was fresh grape juice. All right? Next thing, why fermented wine should not be used for communion? Why do we not use wine in communion? Some years ago, my son was visiting a church in the Chicago area, and he was doing some uh, work up there, and a friend invited him. He went, and he was a, he was a teenager at the time. And he went to the church, and they had communion there. And in the communion, they served wine. Now, thankfully, he, he did not drink it, did not take it. But I, I, I thought how sad it would be for his first exposure to wine to be in the church. And yet that was almost the case. Why should the cup not be fermented wine? By the way, it's significant that the word wine is never used in the New Testament in connection with the Lord's table or with communion or the Lord's Supper. The Bible uses the word cup. In Matthew 26, 27, it says, And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 25 and 6, After the same manner also, he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death till he comes. There's obviously a reason why the omission of the word wine takes place in the Bible. You see, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that that cup represents, that blood is pure without any contamination. 
Jesus was the sinless Lamb of God. He was the spotless Lamb of God. Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary. He did not have the sinful nature that was passed down from Adam through the man. And the bloodline comes through the male. Adam's sin nature was passed through his blood to all future generations. Jesus did not have that bloodline. And I'm so glad that his blood is pure and spotless and perfect. And 1 John 1, 7 says, And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from what? All sin. Cleanses us from all sin. It's unthinkable that we would represent the pure blood of the Lord Jesus Christ with something that is decomposing or something that is fermenting. Again, yeast is essential in the winemaking process. It converts the sugar uh, in the grapes to alcohol during the fermentation process. And throughout Scripture, yeast is also a symbol of sin in the Bible. It's described as the way sin spreads in a person's life. Remember the Lord said, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Paul warned the Corinthian believers, he said, Know ye not that a little leaven, a little yeast, leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The cup is grape juice, the fruit of the vine. The bread in the communion service is also unleavened bread. It must be bread that has no yeast in it because, again, the bread represents the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was totally without sin. It was without spot or blemish, Peter tells us. How can we represent the body and the blood of Christ with corruption and fermentation? Then some people will say, what about Paul's instruction to Timothy to drink a little wine for your stomach's sake? Paul instructed Timothy, and he told him not to appoint a pastor, a bishop, or a deacon who is addicted to wine. He said in 1 Timothy 3, verses 3 and verse 8, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. But then Paul tells Timothy, later in 1 Timothy 5, 23, he tells him to drink no longer water. He's talking about only water. But use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine oft infirmities. Those that lived in that day in the Middle East and still true to today, to today have great difficulty finding pure, unpolluted water. And the water that Timothy was drinking was evidently causing him to have reoccurring stomach issues. And Paul's instruction was to replace the water with oinos, the Greek word oinos. Now, if you take some time and study the health benefits of drinking freshly squeezed grape juice over the lesser benefits of drinking wine, it will confirm that Paul was not telling him to drink intoxicated wine. He was telling him to drink grape juice, drink a little juice, fruit of the vine, for his stomach's sake. Isaiah 65, verse 8 says, Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine, the tirosh, freshly pressed wine or freshly squeezed grape juice, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, Destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake that I may not destroy them all. 
Even God says there's some benefits that come from drinking the grape juice. Now, there is a biblical basis for fermented wine to be used for medical purposes. You remember the Good Samaritan? He, caught, he, he found the traveler who had been beaten and left along the road to die. And the Bible says that he poured in oil and wine into his wounds and brought about a healing process. Proverbs 31 verse 6 says, Wine could be given to those that are ready to die. That's me- medical use. The wine could be given to those that are ready to die. The reverse of that is true. If you want to live, don't drink wine. Amen? Leave it alone. Stay away from it. What are the far-reaching consequences of drinking wine? The common excuse that parents give for drinking wine is they say, but we drink in moderation. The problem with that is that parents, what we excuse or what we do in moderation, our children will tend to do in excess. If parents engage in wine drinking, they cannot teach their sons and daughters that it's wrong to drink. Controlled drinking is not possible with the pressure of peers and in all of the drinking parties that go on. You see, alcoholic intoxication begins with the second drink. The initial effects of the brain is decreased. It decreases our coordination. That affects the drinking person's ability to drive. That's why some people get DUIs from driving under the influence. In 2020, about 30% of all traffic accidents were caused by alcohol-impaired drivers. 30% of all traffic deaths were caused by alcohol-impaired drivers. Every day, one person dies every 45 minutes in the United States of America as a result of an alcohol-impaired driver. Tens of thousands of other deaths are caused and come about as a result of drinking. If a parent becomes an alcoholic, they tell us it takes five generations of no drinking to eliminate the results of a son or daughter becoming an alcoholic with the first drink. Five generations then the iniquity of the fathers, the Bible says, is visited upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So that brings us to the last thing, and that is, how do we conquer this giant of wine? How do we conquer it? Several things we can do. First of all, activate the power of deep-rooted faith and grace. Activate the power of deep-rooted faith and grace. Every single person, every one of us here tonight, have a war that's going on inside of us. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh lusteth, or wars, against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that you would, the things that you know are right. And verse 19 says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, and he goes on and names them, he mentions adultery and drunkenness. Paul commented about this also, the same war going on inside of us in Romans chapter 7. We cannot win this war in our own strength or by our own self-will. We must have the power of God's faith and God's grace. And it comes from the power of the Word of God in us, directed by the Spirit of God that helps us to overcome 
the enemy and overcome the flesh. Galatians 5 verse 16 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The first step of walking in the Spirit is to make sure that we have made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. We've not just in our mind prayed a prayer, though that's important, but there's been a deep salvation in our hearts. We've trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior. You see, James chapter 2, verse 19 says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. You see, salvation is more than a matter of just saying, I believe in God. It's more than just saying, I believe in Jesus Christ. God says the devil believes that too and fears and trembles. Our belief has to be based on an interfaith that's in the depths of our soul. A faith that we're willing to die for. Romans 10, 17, or Romans 10, 9 said, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. We confess with our mouth, we believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. We don't do God's will to get saved, but if we are saved, we want to do God's will. We want to work for Him. We want to serve Him. And we want to live for Him. So then secondly, we must confirm that our body belongs to God. If I'm going to overcome the hold of the wine and the alcohol, if I'm going to have victory over this addiction in my life, I've got to confirm that my body belongs to God. As soon as we receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, He gives us the power to, to, to overcome sin and its penalty. We are begged by Paul in Romans 12 that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. Our body actually belongs to God for two reasons. First of all, He created us. He made us. We belong to Him. Secondly, He redeemed us by the blood of His own Son, if you're saved. When we are born again by the Spirit of God, we become the dwelling place, the temple of the Holy Spirit. God redeemed us, His Holy Spirit lives within me, and it's the power of that Holy Spirit that enables me to have victory over all addictions, including alcohol and drugs and sex and even food. However, if we defile our body, the Bible says we grieve the Holy Spirit, and we quench His power. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20 says, What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God? And ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. If I'm going to glorify God with my body, that means there's some things I can't do, because they will not glorify God. We're to picture ourselves kneeling at the altar in the same way that Abraham did. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, just as Abraham took his son and laid him on that altar and took the knife and was ready to take the life of his son, and God stopped him. God wants us to place ourselves on the altar and be willing to say, Lord, here's my body. It belongs to you. I give it to you. I'm going to live for you and serve you. Then we must if we're going to break those addictions, carry out an extended fast. Fasting is an important part of breaking the addictions in our life. 
This is, the, this is in order to conquer and overcome the alcohol and the drugs and the immorality and all the rest of it. A fasting not only breaks the cycle of the drinking habits, but it'll cleanse your body from the impurities that have come about as a result of the, the addiction. If you have health conditions, it would be wise to check with your doctor and, and check with somebody who understands the value of fasting and the, the value and the proper guidelines that go along with it. But listen to what God promised in Isaiah 58 and verse 6. He says, Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, that ye break every yoke. And in verse 8 he said, Then shall the light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy reward. Sometimes in order to break those addictions, we have to take some time to fast and to cleanse our bodies and our systems of all that's going on. And then fourthly, conquer every thought. Thoughts are powerful. They produce actions. When you think about an addiction, it'll not be long until you surrender to it. For this reason, God commands us to cast down imaginations the imaginations of our addictions, and every high thing, every false philosophy that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5 When a thought comes into your mind, and, and we understand that every thought that comes into our mind is not necessarily our thought. The devil can put thoughts in our mind. But we're to bring every thought into captivity. And there's oftentimes when those thoughts are placed there by the enemy, and we must take control of them, and we must turn to the Word of God. We must put down, take control, bring every thought into captivity, conquer those thoughts. The only way to take every thought captive is for us to learn and memorize the Word of God and quote Verses of Scripture to God, particularly at nighttime. We talked about that a little bit this morning. As we go to bed at night, quoting back the Word of God as we go to sleep. Our day begins in the evening. Genesis chapter 1 says, And the evening and the morning were the first day. And the evening and the morning were the second day. So really our day starts in the evening. So we start out the day in the evening quoting Scripture to God as we go to sleep at nighttime. In the evening... Ask God to point out a verse to you that He wants you to get inside of your heart and your life. You can take some of these verses that we've talked about here today. God says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And that Word will do what Romans 12, 2 says, will be transforming or renewing. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. David said in Psalm 63, verses 5 and 6, My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. As we meditate on God's Word, God will help us to break those addictions and to set us free. And so it doesn't take a whole lot of common sense and biblical understanding to know that when God says wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging and whoso is deceived thereby is not wise, God meant what He said. Amen? And His Word is pretty clear. As believers, we're to leave it alone.
In recent days, I've seen advertisements for churches that have men's retreats or men's meetings, whatever. And, and one particular one I saw, they had a beer tent there. And they said, well, you got to go and you drink a little bit and that kind of breaks down your barriers and you kind of are free then to talk freely and, and all. That's not the Word of God. God says that's a mock. Wine is a mockery. Strong drink is raging. Whoso is deceived thereby is not wise. My father was an alcoholic. God saved him when he was 25 years of age. One time, Dad lived in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and one time we were there visiting, and I was riding with him. We went past a, a, a corner, and he pointed out a, 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 a bar on the corner, and he said to me, he said, Tim, he said, that's the last place I ever went in and got a drink. He said, I ordered a beer, and I was sitting there at the table. They brought it and sat at the table, and he said, all I could think about was, what if Jesus came back while I was sitting here? And he said, I pushed it back. I got up and walked out and never took another drink. And God called my dad to preach, and he pastored for about 40 years. I was saved in one of the revival meetings that my dad was preaching. I'm sure glad God delivered him from the alcohol. He can set us free. And the best way to never become an alcoholic is never take the first drop. I'm 72 years of age, and I don't say this to brag, I say it for, the, for God's glory. 72 years old, and to my knowledge, I've never tasted a drop of alcoholic beverage in my lifetime. One of the reasons is because my dad's life was changed. But through the years, I've been involved in prison ministries, and I've seen what the alcohol does to people. And I have never yet seen any good thing that came out of it. But I've seen a lot of bad things. We are His if we're saved. Our body is the temple of the living God. He lives within me. Don't bring anything into your body that will defile the temple in which God lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Sometimes as we get into it and dig into it, as we looked at some of these Hebrew words and Greek words, there's a lot more there than what we get just on the surface. And We can study the meanings of these words and understand some of the deeper things. And I don't begin to understand all of it. I look forward to the time when I'll be in heaven and when you'll be able to open your word and explain it fully and completely to all of us. But now as we've seen just a little scratch the surface a little bit, would you help us to purpose in our hearts that we'll not defile ourselves like Daniel said with the king's wine. We'll purpose that we'll not partake of those things that you warn us about, that you say are a mockery. You say they're raging, and whoso is deceived thereby is not wise. May we not be deceived. With our heads bowed and eyes closed for just a moment, I, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I want to ask you a question as, before we pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I wonder how many of you say, Brother Tim, with God's help, I don't know if you're like me, you've never taken a drop in your life, or maybe you've in earlier years, or maybe before you got say. But you say, preacher, it's my desire and my purpose, and with God's help, I'm not going to take another drop. By God's grace and with His help for the rest of my life. That's my commitment to the Lord tonight. 
pray for me. Would you lift your hand as a testimony of that? With God's help and by God's grace, I'll not take another drop the rest of my life. God bless you. Thank you. Father, you know the hearts of each one of us. And we're all in different levels, you might say, of our spiritual growth. And we're not here to condemn or judge the person who may not be where we are spiritually, but we can give warnings. We don't isolate or excommunicate somebody because they get angry, and we don't because they take a drink of wine. We don't because they tell a lie or other things that we do. We love them, we pray for them, we try to help them. And the same is true as we talk about this tonight. We just want to share, Lord, what Your Word says clearly. And then allow Your Holy Spirit to prompt us. And I pray, Lord, that as we go from this place tonight, in each day of our lives, as we are faced with the temptations, that we'll remember what we talked about tonight, and our hearts will be convicted, and Your Holy Spirit will remind us that that's a mockery. It's not wise. May we be willing to listen to You and follow Your ways. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.